Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, and thank you for that warm welcome. It is wonderful to be with you this morning to hear all of your voices sing. I'm going to read a poem by Notker. He was a monk from St. Gall. Lo, under the gentle vine, O Christ, the whole church plays in peace. Just for a moment, let us quiet our hearts again, reorient our hearts towards God. Lord, we ask that you would inspire our imaginations. That we may be peacemakers. That we may move towards the other, the stranger, even those we call enemy. We pray that we would see their humanity and their dignity and the image of God in them. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I have four children. My wife, Kate, who was uh, playing violin with me this morning, we drove over from New York, and my kids were so excited to be here, and we, were, we went to a mall for the first time in quite some time, and it was just so good to be in Providence with you. My uh, oldest daughter is eight years old. Her name is Evie, and we have twins who are, uh, I said eight years old, oh my gosh, my oldest daughter is now 10 years old, and my twins are eight years old. And then our son, Eddie, his name is David Edison Francis, the baby, he's four years old. Um, but with my boys, uh, especially in the age that we live in, a big thing that we talk about is what does it mean to be a man? I say, who are you? I'll say, I'm a gunger. I think it means something. They don't know yet, it doesn't really mean much. But to them they go, I'm a gunger, oh great. And, and what are the rules of being a man? And they'll say, the rules of being a man are to love God. I say, well what does that mean to a four year old or to an eight year old? And they say, to love God is to see the dignity of everyone and respect women. They've got two sisters and a mom and I go, that's right. Now, I'm going to show a little picture here. This is my son, uh, Harry. I don't know if you all have that picture. Oh, yeah. So we found this in Harry's room the other week. It says, the rules of being a man, love God, see the dignity, respect women. And then you start to see him adding, love your family, be kind to all people, care for all, respect everyone. We've got to work on spelling, but we're doing pretty good. And, and love everyone. You'll notice, what does it mean to love God? One of the things that we try to emphasize is that loving God, when it takes on flesh, when it takes on this thing, is a Trinitarian imagination that loving God is always connected to the other. Jesus would talk about what are the greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And they'd say, and who is my neighbor? And traditionally, within the Jewish faith, 
and the story of Israel, they had rules for who their neighbor was. And part of that was a system of how do we make this all work to be the people of God? And Jesus came in and flipped the system upside down. He would tell the story of the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, in response to who is my neighbor. His neighbor was the person who was unclean, or the biggest rival, the biggest enemy. And in fact, that person showed them the way of grace. So for my sons and for my daughters, one of the things that we try to teach them is that the high watermark of Christian spirituality is the ability to see. Jesus, all the time, whenever you would follow scripture and the stories, Jesus would see and recognize the humanity and dignity of people who the Pharisees would not recognize. Jesus would be accused of always hanging out with sinners or always associating with those who are on the underside of power. Jesus would see them. He would call them. He would associate with tax collectors. So not only is he associating with who the religious say don't associate with, he's also associating with, on a political scale, who you'd say don't associate with them. Now, I got the unique opportunity a couple of years ago to go with a, a set of pastors to Rome um, and have a private audience with Pope Francis. How it came about was when Pope Francis was in New York, he needed a place to have a meeting, and our church just happened to have a good meeting space to where he could do this with some pastors. However, last minute, had to cancel, and we were like, oh man, that was a real big bummer. We were gonna meet the Pope, now we don't get to meet the Pope. And they said, hey, we'll make it up to you. They sent us an email a few months later, and they said, hey, can you be in like three weeks in Rome? When you get the, when you get the email, can you be in three weeks in Rome? You're like, I think I can be there. So. We made our way to Rome, and uh, a group of pastors met with Pope Francis for about two hours. And the odd thing was, we're in the Vatican, and his posture of humility was so much that it was almost hard to handle. Karl Barth has this reference where he talks about the mercy of God is often more difficult for humans than the judgment of God. Meaning we understand judgment, we just can't step into the light of mercy because it reveals our own nature. And that's what it felt like because a group of about 30 evangelical pastors, there's a lot of ego in that room. And so to step into a space with Pope Francis where there was so much humility, where he starts off the meeting apologizing to us, apologizing about the way that the Catholic Church had treated people outside of the Catholic Church, people of faith. Be the greatest danger um, for people of faith in the 21st century, which he said is fundamentalism. And he said the great enemy of faith is not form of, is not some new atheism or anything where you go doubt it's someone that is so certain and goes so in their ways that the only thing that they can see is fragility for the ways that other people of faith or non-faith. They can't see their humanity. They only see the ways that they're wrong. 
and people on the right go that way and people on the left go that way. It, we, no one is immune to this. And usually this always leads to violence. Now, you may say it doesn't always lead to physical violence, but it leads to a violence of objectifying the human being that is in front of you. And so this morning, especially on a Sunday right after we have more religious violence, I wanna focus on a framework for peacemaking that actually is influenced by many things. One of is our cellists that played this morning, Dr. Dave Campbell. And it's, it's a framework that uh, is, is, is pretty simple, but I think it will help us. The first thing it says is this, there's no person that is above, I'm sorry, there's no idea that is above critique. And there is no person below dignity. So these are our two poles here, and this is what I mean by this. There is no idea above critique. You are not God. You do not own the truth. And in fact, it's a good thing to have diversity, to be able to try to wrestle with any thought. There's no thought that's above critique. However, also holding the tension that there's no person below dignity. So if there is a thought that takes away someone's dignity, we can't even critique it. We can't even go there. So this is the paradox that we live in. And now I'm going to move this along, this next framework, which is going to be a Trinitarian framework from this. My dear friend Andrew Arndt says this, people are not problems to be solved. People are not objects who we are to fear. They are mysteries to be honored. So, once again, within the framework of peace, there is no idea above critique. We're going to argue. We're going to fight. There's going to be tension. But there's no person below dignity. And in fact, when we see a person, especially that we disagree with, especially where there is conflict, they are not problems to be solved. They are mysteries to be honored. And so this morning, we're going to explore, and I'm going to try to do this very quickly because we can get in sometimes the weeds of the theology or philosophy behind this. But essentially, this is what we're going to tackle. What does it mean to be a person? We're going to tackle modern consciousness, which I'm going to call Cartesian consciousness, versus Christian consciousness, which I'm going to call the Christian imagination. And then finally, we're going to fall on this, peacemaking as spiritual formation. Now, years ago, I got to go on a trip, and I've been back multiple times to Israel and Palestine, and be in the heart of conflict that involves politics, but also involves religion, that also involves race. And I went and learned and heard stories from people who are on the ground of tragedy, but also people who somehow can transcend that pain. And so one of the things that I gathered from that, for me, for my own faith and my own language of faith, is that 21st century spiritual formation, to me, looks like peacemaking. And we're going to get there. But we're going to start off with uh, one of the godfathers of my faith, Thomas Merton. And Merton uh, 
as he is an older man, this is in uh, the end of the 1960s, he writes this beautiful book uh, called Zen and the Birds of Appetite, where essentially he talks about 21st century spirituality. And this is the end of the 1960s, and if you ever read this book, it'll freak you out because it sounds like he is writing directly to us in the age of 2019. And he writes about post-Christian Christianity. And this is his critique of post-Christian Christianity. He says, it is solely activistic, secular, and anti-mystical. It's activistic, secular, and anti-mystical. And he talks about the consciousness that this forms. It's by Cartesian thought. He says this, and there's a quote here. Modern consciousness tends to create this solipsistic bubble of awareness, an ego self imprisoned in its own consciousness, isolated and out of touch with other selves insofar as they are all things rather than persons. Now, this is a snapshot of essentially the Cartesian imagination, which remember, I think and therefore I am. In the Cartesian imagination, we see the world through our identity and the way that we experience the world. A caricature of this to an extreme is an identity politic or philosophy that refuses to see or acknowledge any truth outside of one's own experience. And our own thoughts become these prisons of self-doubt, isolation in our own pain, in our own experience. And to be honest, I think we all on some level struggle with this. This past week for Lent, we had a cultural moment of fasting it was a cultural moment that was forced upon us. But Facebook went down and Instagram went down, right? And in that moment, I didn't realize how often, about every 30 minutes, I'm going, is it back on? Is it back, is it back on? Just trying to refresh, just quietly, going back to this place. Now, I think that social media is a reflection of this consciousness. We live in an age of globalization where we feel like we can connect to anyone around the world, the click of a button. However, you find that we are so isolated and so lonely. Why? Well, on one end, our connection, what we do to those who we connect with, is we objectify pretty quickly. Think about the way that people become, either through humor, a hashtag, or a meme, or through outrage, if you've ever been on the wrong side of outrage on social media, where essentially you become a scapegoat. Now, in this type of consciousness, what eventually happens is God becomes object. And when God becomes object, God sooner or later dies because God as object is ultimately unthinkable. This is how Merton writes this. God as object, this is a quote, is not only a mere abstract concept, 
but one which contains so many internal contradictions that it becomes entirely non-negotiable, except when it is hardened into an idol that is maintained in existence by sheer act of will. He goes on to say, the weariness of upholding this idol leads to the murder of the deity, liberated from the strain of willfully maintaining an object, God, and existence. The Cartesian consciousness remains nonetheless imprisoned in itself. Hence the need to break out and meet the other, encounter or have fellowship or communion with other people. We have to remember that God in nature is relational. And when you take out any form of relationship with God, and it only becomes a set system of dogma, we make an idol out of that very quickly. And what happens within this consciousness is that the neighbor also becomes objectified. But we remember that people are not objects. Why do we do this? Why do we objectify people? I would suggest the main root of this is fear. You say, what do we fear? I'll try to do this quick. One, we fear difference. We fear those who are different than us, and so we avoid them. When I was in Israel and Palestine, we would meet people that often um, had such a great fear of the other side. And I remember sitting in one of these uh, dinners with a Jewish man that was a beautiful man who did so much good in his life, but the way that he was talking about a Palestinian was so dehumanizing. And this person had obviously experienced so much pain. And he was saying things that on one end, I said, well, he made a, a reference to there's no such thing as a Christian Palestinian. And I said, well, just so you know, the lunch that I was just at was with a pastor where we, we shared a time of worship with a Christian Palestinian. And he responded, well, that, that can't be true because, and I said, well, actually it is true. And so we sat in this space, this tension, and we asked a question, have you ever talked to a Palestinian? And his response was, no. So you've never met the person that you feel, you've never heard their story, no. And so we were able to ask questions by the time I've, I've gone back four times. Um, when I went back the, the last time, how much softer he was. He said, I have to tell you, I was challenged by you Americans, and I've become friends with a Palestinian. And to see his entire worldview slowly begin to soften towards the other. We fear those who are different. We fear loss and change. Now, when I say we fear loss and change, a big part of this is if I associate with them, my group will no longer associate with me. Jean Venier puts it like this. To be open is an enormously risky enterprise. You risk status, money, friendship, the recognition and sense of belonging that we so prize. You risk the chaos of loneliness. We fear what will happen if I associate with this person. We're afraid of our own injustice. 
and we objectify because we're afraid of our own injustice. What do I mean by that? If you're a white person in this room, you, it's often hard to talk about the history of the ways that white supremacy and white people have treated African-American people in the history of slavery. Because you could grow up and say, I was never racist, I was never, I didn't grow up like that, I'm friends with black people. And yet there's tension in real history to say, I need to dive into this pain. We fear our own injustice, so what do we do? We avoid the pain. So we avoid talking to people who have experienced pain. We avoid talking to someone that's calling out something that we may not feel because we are afraid of our own injustice. And, and finally, I think on one end, we're afraid of God or we're afraid of somehow losing truth. When I was with Pope Francis, he gave this beautiful talk and the first response of an evangelical pastor, a megachurch pastor in the Midwest. He got up, and this is the first words that come out of the 30 pastors that I'm with, our response to this apology. He gets up, and he says, you have been accused of being a universalist. And do you believe, and he got up, and I'm going, like, I'm not with him. I am not with this guy right now. And I, and he accused the Pope. What? His posture was one of, I have to uphold the truth. If I'm here to his own tribe, he had to say that he called out the Pope on what he felt the Catholic Church was the bad theology. And it was embarrassing. It hurt. It was like, ah. And to watch the grace that the Pope responded with. It's a longer story that I don't need to go into much more. However, I'll just say this. I watched peacemaking in action. It started with listening. It started with more questions. And then a beautiful response of dignity. Now, if this modern consciousness leads us to a place of objectifying, what does the Christian conscious do? What does it mean to be a person instead of just saying, I think and therefore I am? What is the Trinitarian model of personhood? Rowan Williams, who is, uh, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury and he's also a brilliant uh, systematic theologian. He's uh, Anglican. He's a Welshman. I got to spend some time with him uh, a couple weeks ago. Where, so much of the language was around the Trinity and it was beautiful. He, he wrote a book that I love called um, Being Human. And it talks a lot about personhood. But within this framework, uh, he said this, God is most God when we are most human. We are most human when God is most God. And so we must rethink human dignity within that framework. Now, we tend to think in dualistic forms, and this is Cartesian method, is in dualism. But within the Trinity, one thing that it messes with our minds is that it, dualism is kind of erased. So we tend to think of a person either, either as an individual or person, personhood on the collective. 
And what the Trinity shows us and the idea of the Trinity is mutuality and that the personhood of God, three in one, that somehow, and this is what's so odd, is that it's, it's a paradox of not either or. The root of the Trinity is not hierarchical. It's based in relationship. In theology, and I'm gonna get a little bit into this, and some of you are gonna be like, I hate this talk right now of theology. And for some, it's like, actually, if you, if you kind of get this concept, it'll be important for why we talk about personhood, which is, is this. The essence of God, what it means to be God, can never be known. Why? Because we are creature and God is God. So when you talk about the essence of God and the study of the essence of God, it's really hard. It's actually called negative theology, apophatic theology, when you study the light and darkness and the essence, and still you go, we, we can't know. And yet when you talk about the agency of God or the revelation of how we know God is God, that's through love. We know this through revelation, and the heart of revelation for the Trinity is a heart of love, the reconciling, healing, diverse love. We say God is love. In Orthodox theology, this diversity they call it economy. And so the economy of the Son, or Jesus Christ, is the economy that restores human nature. Rowan Williams puts it like this. Life, death, and resurrection of the incarnate word restores, transforms the entire map of what's possible for humans. And so what Christ does is to redraw the boundaries in which humans operate. For us to see what it means to be fully human, we look at Jesus Christ. And yet, the tension of also to see what it means to be fully God, we look at Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 puts it like this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort in his love, and any common sharing in the spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking for your own interests, but each of, each of you the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even on the cross. So when we talk about Christ, Christ restores the nature of humanity. And yet, the Spirit restores the individual. So Christ sets a new possibility for what humanity can be. And each one of us who experience the teachings of Jesus Christ, that experience that changes us is the experience of the Spirit. Now in Orthodox theology, one of my favorite Orthodox theologians, this guy named Lofsky, he has this phrase. He says, the image of God in the world is Christ. The image of the Holy Spirit is us. The face of the Holy Spirit is the transformed faces of the saints. Irenaeus put it this way. 
The glory of God is humanity fully realized. See, when we step into the idea that, wow, there is a, through this love, there is actually a new way to live, a new humanity. It's a new consciousness. Paul said, be renewed by the trans, transformation of your mind. Lean into this love. So Rowan Williams, he, he would put it this way. He says, a good theology is oriented towards healing human wounds. Good theology always leads us back to the trinity of healing. Elizabeth Johnson, who's a baller theologian, she says, the creative redeeming paradox of Jesus, the paradox that points the way to reconciliation of opposites and their transformation from enemies into a liberating, unified diversity. We are created in the image of God to embody the diversity within the Trinity. Johnson goes on to say, the God who is thrice personal signifies the very essence of God is to be in relation and thus relatedness rather than solidarity ego is the heart of all reality. In South Africa, there's a phrase for this. It's called Ubuntu. And Desmond Tutu's daughter she wrote about Ubuntu. She says this, in very broad terms, it is an ethic of interdependence. It is an ethic that recognizes that everything I do has an effect on you and your well-being. And everything that you do has an effect on me and my well-being. That although we are different people, we are essentially interconnected. See, the good of the other is not separable for the good of me. And the hurt or the pain of the other is not separable from my pain. Our healing is also connected. This is the Trinitarian idea of personhood. That yes, individual, and yes, collective, and that the personhood of us, we are all connected. And the thing that's interesting is that in the same way that the Trinity and the diversity of the Trinity has this agency, we all are a part of the body of Christ. And we're all a part of the healing of others. And this is what it means to be a peacemaker, to be called a child of God. It's to move towards others' pain, to see their dignity, and to listen. Now, for Israel and Palestine, one of the things that was most profound for me that transcended this pain was seeing parents um, who had lost loved ones in the conflict, Jewish parents who had lost loved ones, and Palestinian parents who lost loved ones. And there's a group of over 700 families that come together, and essentially they have a time to tell their son or daughter's story. And in this, there is weeping, there is conflict, and yet there is so much healing. They say, we don't want anyone to join our club. We have enough members. We don't want more children dying. And yet this group somehow transcends those fear of differences or those fears of being in the right group or those fear of injustice or those fear of truth. Why? Because they see the dignity of each other. Now, what I would suggest to you is that when you have diversity, the fruit of that will be confusion. 
but it's a gift. It's fruitful confusion. We lean in with curiosity. Why? Because back to that phrase from Andrew, every person is not a problem to be solved. They are a mystery to be honored. Let us busy ourselves with wonder. This idea of peacemaking, and I'll close with this, it, it, can, get, um, it can get messy because our ego gets involved where we feel like we are the healer. We feel like we are the ones that come as, okay, I'm gonna be the peacemaker in this and I'm gonna solve this problem. But what we find through scripture over and over again is in every parable, we're the person in the ditch. We're not the good Samaritan. We're the person that needs healing. We're the person that needs rescuing. And so as I talk to you as a peacemaker, do you come in that with that attitude of, I'm a learner? I'm a person that's coming instead of to say, I'm gonna teach you what to think. You're gonna come with curiosity. There's a parable that I'll end with. This is by Julian Norwich. And this messes with me, especially as a person that works in church world. It's called the parable of the Lord of the servant. The Lord sits solemnly in repose and peace. The servant stands near before his Lord, reverently, ready to do his will. The Lord looks upon his servant most lovingly and sweetly and humbly, and he sends him to a certain place to do his will. The servant not only goes, but he suddenly leaps up and runs in great haste because of his love to do the Lord's will. And he immediately falls into a deep pit and receives a very great injury. Then he groans and moans and waits and rises, but he cannot rise up or help himself in any way. In all of this, the greatest misfortune was the lack of reassurance. The servant could not turn his face to look back upon his loving Lord, who was very near to him and in whom there was complete comfort. But like a man who was feeble and witless for the moment, he was intent on his suffering and waited in his woe. But then the Lord came to him. And in the same loving way, he watched him tenderly. And he said, for it is only his goodwill and his great desire that were the cause of his falling. It was his willingness and his goodness why he fell. Behold, my loving servant, what harm and distress he received in my service for love. Is it not reasonable that I reward him for his fright and his dread, his hurt and his wounds and all his woe? And not only this, but does it not fall on me to give a gift that is better to him and more honorable than his own health would have been? Now for me, this is the story of my clumsiness in faith. That how many times have I done harm in the name of trying to do good? That even in trying to be a peacemaker or trying to be someone of faith and preach love, how often we of the church have failed. And yet the beautiful thing is that in our fallenness, there's still mercy. 
And so if we think that I am so embarrassed by my history, I'm so hurt by what I've done, this is where forgiveness comes into play. All theology leads us to a place of healing. All good theology leads us to a place of self-awareness to turn, which is called repentance. And so this morning, as we close and we come to the table, my encouragement to you is there are people in this room that totally disagree with you on the way that you think about God or think about politics or think about the world. And yet, let us not live in a model that's a purity culture that just shames those we disagree with. Let us live in a culture of mercy and let us turn to God and repent. And so this morning, I ask that you do this with me. Maybe we stand. And as we stand together, as we stand together, we bow our heads and we think of the, the verse where there's the man that says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Think in your own life a place of conflict. Think of your own life a place where perhaps with someone that has hurt you, you have objectified them. You have dehumanized them. Either through thought, word, or deed by something that you have done or something that you have left undone. This morning we come to the table and before we do, Paul said, examine your hearts. And so we turn to God and we confess. We confess that we have not loved God with our whole hearts. sing this confession together. Oh, merciful God, forgive us, forgive us. Most merciful God, most merciful God, forgive us, forgive us for all the things that we have done. For all the things we have done and left undone. For all the things. For all the things we have done and left undone. And now Pastor Andrew will come up receive these words from the Holy Scriptures of assurance. Psalm 103, I am compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. I will not always accuse nor harbor anger forever. I will not treat you as your sins deserve or repay you according to your iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, 
so high is my love for you. As far as the east is from the west, so far I have removed your sins from you. May the Lord be with you. And also we lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give thanks and praise. We cry out to you, God, in the season of preparation, though we are the ones who first wandered away. But as a good shepherd who seeks out their flock, you sent your son that he might rescue all who were lost. Grant us now, even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that in the eating of this bread and the drinking of this cup, we might fear no evil. Though we are tired, steady our legs and nourish our hearts, that we may walk in obedience and love all our days. Before he died, the night before he died for us, Jesus was at the table with his friends. He took bread, gave thanks to you, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As supper was ending, Jesus took the cup of wine. Again, he gave thanks to you, gave it to them and said, drink this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you and for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. So great is the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ, Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Now gathered at our table, O God of all creation, and remembering Christ, crucified and risen, who was and is and is to come, we offer to you our gifts of bread and wine and ourselves a living sacrifice. Pour out your spirit upon these gifts that they may be the body and the blood of Christ. Through Christ, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, to you be honor, glory, and praise forever and ever. Amen. These are the gifts of God for the people, for the people of God. You're now invited to come to the Lord's table. You can come up using the center aisles and walk back to your seats using the outside aisles. And we do invite you to come receive prayer. If there's something in your life that you would like to receive prayer for, you can come up to your left to these folks or if you just like to receive a special blessing. We have um, prayer here. We also have a prayer in the back with folks. So either way, you can come to either place. So come, let us receive. <laughs> 